tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. Tis the week before Halloween, and all through the vestibule, my voice was heard as I shared our haunted schedule, or something like that. But yes, we are excited about the busy week ahead. Here is what we'll be doing for Halloween this year. On Wednesday, October 28th, there will be a great celebration. That is to say, we'll be releasing the Season Pass 15 Halloween bonus episode. Make sure you check your Season Pass feeds for that one to put you in the Halloween mood. And on Halloween itself, we'll be releasing Episode 10 of Season 15, which is our full-length free Halloween episode. It will be available to everyone on Saturday, so you can enjoy our Halloween tales on the day, or the night, itself. And with the Halloween gift-buying season upon us, I am proud to announce a whole new visual experience available in our online store. As you know, we have a talented roster of illustrators who create art for each episode. Have you ever thought about getting that artwork on a t-shirt, or poster, or hoodie? Well, now you can. We have opened the Museum of No Sleep Art. We have curated the art from seasons 14 and 15 and presented them museum style so you can create your own galleries and wear them or hang them on your walls. Check the show notes for the link and find the artwork which stirs and chills your soul. It's all at the Museum of No Sleep Art. And so, let's head into Halloween Week Strong. Carve the pumpkins, candy the corn, and make this a sleepless Halloween. Now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we join a man who's moved back home to care for his recently widowed mother. Naturally, moving back home means finding a new job and jobs are hard to come by. So while looking for gainful employment, why not become a volunteer? But in this tale, shared with us by author J.M. Smith, we discover that being a volunteer emergency responder can have even more dangers than one might suspect. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Graham Rowett, Mike Delgadio, and Alexis Bristow. So get ready to call it in, but watch you don't get too distracted by that accident. Otherwise, you'll see the sign that says, Rest Stop, One Mile.
I stared at the piece of paper in my hands. All volunteers must keep the emergency responder decal on their windshield. If you pass an accident in your marked vehicle, you must stop to help and call it in. No exceptions. Charles, did you hear me? Yeah, I got it, Captain Holloway. I scoffed at the absurdity of the situation. How can the list of rules for volunteer emergency responders only have one rule? And why did they bother to waste an entire piece of paper to print it? The captain narrowed his eyes as he handed me the decal, holding it in his grip when I tried to take it from him. He leaned in. I can't stress enough how important it is to always stop. No matter where you're going or what your plans are, stop at any accidents you see while driving. I put on my most confident grin and hoped my voice wouldn't betray how unnerved I actually was. While I understood the need for the rule in such a large, sparsely populated county, I didn't understand why it would be the only rule. Of course, I understand. I walked out to my car with my new decal and put it on the windshield right then. I didn't want him to see me shirking the rule before I had even left the parking lot. Once it was on, I called my mom to tell her I was done and on my way home. She had become a warrior ever since my dad passed. That's actually why I had agreed to move in with her when I had trouble finding a job after college. I didn't expect my prospects to be much better in a small town, but I could keep an eye on my mom while I sent in applications. Plus, I had found a way to do some good while I was out here. It didn't have anything to do with the kind of job I was looking for, but it made me feel useful, and that was a nice change. As a volunteer, I didn't get dispatched to calls. I was just supposed to help if I saw an accident. It was a cheap solution for the issues caused by a large county having a limited number of ambulances. I saw a few accidents while out running errands, and I stopped at each of them. Only one required medical assistance. The passenger had broken her nose when the airbag deployed. There wasn't much I could do to help her nose other than hold an ice pack on it, but I did call it in. I waited with the two of them for about an hour until the tow truck and ambulance arrived. It was a slight inconvenience, but not the end of the world. I was heading home pretty late one night after attending a friend's wedding. I was exhausted from the events of the day and looking forward to crashing in my bed at home. I exited the freeway and turned on to the winding two-lane highway that would take me the rest of the way home. I saw the sign for the upcoming rest stop. Rest stop. One mile. I smiled, knowing that meant I was halfway there and the very thought of getting home seemed to make me more tired. I yawned and turned up the radio to help me stay awake. And then, I saw it. A truck crashed into a tree near the entrance of the rest stop. I was still at least 15 minutes from my house, and the thought of having to wait an hour or longer for an ambulance to arrive was too much. I slowed down and turned on my high beams as I approached the site of the crash. The driver's side door was open, but there were no people anywhere in sight. I decided that some drunk had probably wrecked and then bailed before the authorities were notified. I didn't see a point in stopping if there was nobody to help, so I just kept driving. In my hurry to get home, I had forgotten the rule. 
My exhausted brain quickly forgot about the wreck after it faded from view in my rearview mirror. I was singing along with the radio when I saw the sign again. Rest stop. One mile. I was confused because I knew there was only one rest stop between the highway and my mom's house on this road. I thought for a moment that I had possibly fallen asleep and missed the turn for the house, but that was impossible. There was no way I could have successfully navigated the turns in the road while asleep. My confusion turned to dread as I approached the rest stop and saw the accident again. That same red truck was there. The front end smashed up against the trunk of a tree, and the driver's door still open. I glanced at it as I drove on, still seeing nobody in the truck or rest stop. I tried to shake it off, blame the whole strange scenario on my need for sleep, but deep down, I knew that wasn't it. I pressed my foot down on the accelerator, just wanting to get away from the situation as fast as possible. Rest stop. One mile. You have got to be kidding me. I didn't even bother to slow down when I saw the wreck this time. All the hairs on the back of my neck were standing straight up, and I just knew that I needed to get away from this place. I watched the wreck in my rearview mirror as I drove away until it was out of sight. I started to feel silly when I went another mile and didn't see the sign. Maybe I really had imagined the whole thing. Then, I saw her. A woman was walking along the side of the highway in a gray, tattered dress. I slowed down as I approached her, not wanting to accidentally clip her on the narrow highway. She stopped walking and began to point at my car as I drove by. I was about to stop the car and see if she needed help, but when I looked in my rearview mirror, she was gone. Adrenaline surged through my body, ridding me of the exhaustion that had plagued the earlier part of my drive home. I didn't have much time to think about her, because I saw the sign again. Rest stop. One mile. Before I even got to the rest stop, I saw several people walking along both sides of the road. All of them were in tattered gray clothes, and every single one of them was pointing at my car. Without realizing, I had slowed my car until I was barely moving. I rolled down my window to ask the man closest to me if he needed help. When he didn't answer immediately, I assumed he hadn't heard me over the radio. I stopped the car and turned down the music. Sir, do you need help? You can use my phone to call you and your friends a ride if you need. His answer, if you could call it that was a shrill scream that echoed in my car. Soon after, all the others walking along the road also started screeching with him, all while pointing at my car. I decided it was probably not safe to sit there with my window down while these people were screaming like that, so I rolled my window up and drove away. Once again, I drove past the wreck, this time while dialing 911 on my phone. I was far too creeped out to stop at this point, but I could call in the wreck and strange people on the side of the highway. It rang and rang, but nobody answered. I knew that was unusual because Captain Holloway said somebody was always on duty to answer the dispatch calls in Grimes County, 
The wreck was still in sight from my rearview mirror when I started passing by the people on the side of the road again. This time, they seemed angry. Instead of just pointing at my car, they charged at it. I slammed on my brakes to avoid hitting one of them. Within seconds, they had surrounded my car, beating on the windows and shrieking. What do you want from me? I just wanted to curl into a ball and hide, but I was terrified of what would happen if they managed to break through one of the windows. I muttered a curse as I slammed my foot on the gas pedal. They all seemed to move quickly to get out of the way once the car was moving again. Rest stop. One mile. I felt like I was trapped in a never-ending nightmare. The shrieking people I had just left behind were now approaching my car from the front. It looked as though their group had doubled in size. I tried to drive through the crowd like I had done earlier, but this time they didn't move out of the way. I started crying as I ran over several of them. My conscience wouldn't allow me to just keep driving, so after getting ahead of the group a bit, I stopped. Against every instinct I had, I opened my door to get out and check on those I had hit. Before I could step all the way out, a lone person, separated from the group, slammed my door shut. He was the only one not screeching in unison with the others. His face was different than I remembered, more drawn, and there were dark circles under his eyes as if he hadn't slept in years. But the way those eyes looked at me was unmistakable. Dad, how are you here? What's going on? I rolled down the window. He might have been dead, but he was still my dad, and I yearned to reach out and hug him. He shook his head. Charlie, you aren't supposed to be here. You have to leave. I've been trying, Dad. I can't get out of here. The road just keeps bringing me back. Please get in. Help me find the way out. You can come with me. Tears rolled down my cheeks as I begged him. I could see the answer in his eyes before he even opened his mouth. The others in the group were screaming louder now and making their way to the car. I can't, bud. That's not how it works. Remember the rule, Charlie. You've got the decal on your car. You have to follow the rule. Go, buddy. Now, before they catch up to you. Dad, I can't just leave you. A sad smile crept across his face. You have to, bud. I'm already gone. I love you, Charlie. Now go. Hurry. The others in the group had caught up to us. I slammed on the gas and took off, sobbing as I watched them surround my dad in the rearview mirror. Rest stop. One mile. I turned on my hazard lights before the truck even came into view. I didn't see the group of people this time, but I was convinced they might arrive any minute. I pulled up behind the truck and tried calling the dispatch line again. This time, it went through. Making an effort to keep the terror out of my voice, I told the dispatcher about the truck. You didn't stop, did you? I didn't want to try and explain the situation. I'm pulled up behind the truck right now. Yeah, but you've passed this accident before, haven't you? Don't worry, you're not the first. I'll send a deputy and an ambulance to your location right away. Captain Holloway will want to talk with you tomorrow. You can give him back the decal then if you want. 
As I sat in my car, waiting for the deputy, the only thing I could think of was the rule. The one rule so important, they printed it out on a separate piece of paper from all the other paperwork. All volunteers must keep the emergency responder decal on their windshield. If you pass an accident in your marked vehicle, you must stop to help and call it in. No exceptions. Do not meddle with forces beyond your comprehension. That's always a good rule to follow. And yet, Ouija boards are endlessly popular and people never learn. Not least, Carol, Sandy, and Mindy, three girls dead set on contacting the other side. But in this tale, shared with us by author Eddie Generous, we're reminded that when you call into the void, you can never be sure who will answer. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Sarah Thomas, Nicole Goodnight, Jessica McAvoy, and Kyle Akers. So ask your questions and be prepared for the answers, whether you like them or not. Those are the rules if you find yourself at a slumber party seance. The planchette didn't move, but the dancing orange glow from the three candles at the head of the board suggested, maybe. Did it move? Carol was twelve. She was pale as ivory, had straight black hair and deep blue eyes, upturned at a slight cat-like angle. It moved, right? Carol's mother was dead and Carol was desperate, though wouldn't admit anything of the sort. The board was from the 80s, made by Mattel. Sandy lifted her fingers from the hunk of plastic fashioned to resemble aged wood. (sighs) Didn't move at all. She was reddish with a suntan that resembled a burn. Thirteen that day. Had beady green eyes. Wore a sea of rusty freckles. And had hair the color of carrots. Mindy squinted. The way the candlelight dashed over her eyes made the irises appear golden. You sure? Mindy was chubby. The oldest by four months. Wore her hair in a ponytail. The color of a Shetland pony's tail. All three were in lounging clothes and dealing with different levels of letdown. Sandy's mother brought out the board for them to play with while she went to visit friends for the night. The girls were old enough to hang out sans chaperone. The chances of getting in trouble at the old farmhouse were slim. Carol held her phone before her, casting a blue swath over her face, making her look downright ghostly. Says here, Ouija boards were sold as parlor games. What's a parlor game? Mindy scrunched her lips towards her chin and bugged her eyes, 
Carol turned to Sandy. Sandy shrugged. Eyes returned to the screen. Carol read on. There are a bunch of ways we can. Do you have salt? Mindy spied on her friend. Carol's dad had a maid. Carol's dad let her get away with everything. Carol's dad wanted to make sure he kept that part of his family happy, despite her not having a mother. Why? We can summon a witch if we pour salt. My mom will kick my butt if I make a mess. Double if she finds out I wasted salt. Find one that doesn't make a mess. Sandy had the plan shed in her hands, flipping and catching it above her crossed legs. We can clean. Your mom won't know. They didn't get it. Her mom figured out everything. Just see what else. Carol back-searched and clicked the next heading. Automatic writing. They began and they kept at it. Tool hit paper for a twelfth time. The trio asked questions, switched pens, traded for a pencil, closed eyes, opened eyes, blew out the candles, lit more candles, went upstairs, and were finally in the basement. Unfinished walls of damp stone, whitewashed but flaking. The floor was smooth cement. A big green furnace and the off-white washer and dryer filled the space opposite the indoor-outdoor carpeted stairs. Between them was a shelving unit loaded with junk. The girls sat in a wide patch of open floor next to a casket-sized deep freeze. The floor was cool through their yoga pants. They'd added bulky hoodies to their get-ups once deciding on the basement. Carol had carded the Ouija board in case they wanted to try again. According to the internet, it helped to have personal things of the attempted connection. Carol wore her mother's wedding band on a necklace, would put it on her hand if they wanted to try the board again. Her mother would find her. Sandy held a purple crayon to a blank sheet of paper. This is stupid. Carol absently fiddled with the ring dangling beneath her shirt. You know... We're supposed to use something personal with the Ouija board. Maybe that's why it doesn't work. Like, instead of that stupid plastic thing? Sandy tossed the crayon across the room. It rolled into the shadows. The basement was mostly shadows, even with the hanging bulb lit. Carol was about to argue when Mindy spoke first. Hey, yeah, lose a plastic thing. I bet we get something from down here. Maybe then we could talk to some old farm wife or something. Carol opened her mouth, then closed it. She unhooked the skinny gold chain from her neck and slipped the ring into her palm while her friends carried lit candles into the outer reaches of the room. With the ring in her hand, even if they attempted contact with local spirits, she'd still find her mom. Blind fingers worked the clasp, and the necklace again dangled beneath her sweater. So much lighter without the ring. It slid onto the third finger of her left hand like home. Hey, was all this here when you moved in? Sandy hurried over and looked at the boxes Mindy had located. Elbows deep one second. The next, she turned around holding up enormous, dusty eyeglasses and a set of grayed dentures. 
Those aren't mine. Mindy blew off the glasses and dentures. The glasses magnified her eyes comically. The dentures bulged her lips an inch. The dentures clacked as she spoke. How do I look? Ew! What else is in there? Carol had joined the search that wasn't looking. Mindy turned back to the eye-level box, glasses slipping to the end of her nose. The candle glinted shine off a partially rusted blade. She spun around again, this time with a dagger in hand, and spat the dentures onto the floor. This'll point to stuff on the board for sure. Sandy snatched the knife. She looked to Carol. It say anything about blood sacrifice? Carol gulped and pulled her phone from the front pocket of her hoodie, not understanding that Sandy's words were a demand rather than a question. The bulb lamp switched off. The candles flickered at the head of the board. Sandy went first, tetanus far from the mind, and forced the blade into her palm with a gasp. She yanked it free and blood dribbled onto the board. The knife fell and Mindy grabbed it, hungry to get it over with. The knife's blade was dull, but the pointed tip was fine. A red bubble bloomed for half a second before running. Mindy shook her hand above the board, sprinkling droplets. Shit. You go. Carol gazed into the reflective droplets and the dirty, wet blade. She didn't want to, but picked up the knife. Surprised by its sturdiness, she closed her eyes and pricked her palm. The blood hardly dribbled. Mindy grabbed her hand and tried to squeeze out extra. There. Put the knife in the middle. Same as the planchette. Mindy let go of Carol. The knife fell and Carol opened her eyes. The dampness of the basement suddenly seemed so full that she drowned in it. And still, her hands reached and fingers touched the hilt. Mindy's eyes beamed. Flames reflected. Spirits of the night, talk to us. Are you here? They waited. Nothing. Spirits, come to us. We will do whatever you say. Are you here? The knife did not move. They waited. You try, Carol. Spirits, come to us. Are you here? Still nothing. This is stupid. Shh. Just wait a second. Maybe they're like in some other place. They waited and waited. The quiet of the basement opened ears to the world beyond the thick stone foundation. The patter of rain. The cry of the cows in the field beyond the fence. And the whisper of the summer breeze finding cracks in the ancient stonework. The trio stared, hard. Flame glow shimmered over the blood on the board, bounced on the clean areas of the knife. They watched and waited. Nothing. Their fingers shined, and each felt the gentle burn from their cuts. Sandy was the first to lift her hands, bored and annoyed. Carol followed, 
She'd scared herself into believing there was no way this would fail, and she'd see her mother one more time. Put him back on! Fingers made contact again. Talk to us. Are you here? The rain. The whistling breeze. The occasional cry of the cows, all outside. The basement was silent aside from the gentle breaths. The girls watched the knife. The board beneath had soaked up much of the blood, staining splotches over the gothic lettering. They waited. And waited. Still nothing. Carol lifted her eyes from the board. The unfinished ceiling was a wooden shadow space. The gray spiderweb seemed to groove on a barely perceptible rhythm. Carol felt herself swaying along. Are you here? A tear forced its way to the corner of her eye. The rain and the breeze stopped, as if sucked away. They waited. Carol pressed her fingers hard against the knife. Are you here? Nothing. Mindy lifted her hands again and straightened the goofy glasses. What a stupid waste. Sandy didn't argue it. Her hands came away, too. Are you here? Mindy pushed to her feet, brushed her floor-chilled butt. Come on. Sandy stood, arms stretched for balance. Are you here? Still nothing. Come on, let's go walk. Cows wailed outside. The rain sounded as if a monsoon deluge fell from a cold start. The breeze became a wind, whistling like a child's scream. The candle flames disappeared. Void dark. The basement seemed to shrink tight on the girls. What the The glasses fell from Mindy's face and clanked on the floor as she jerked her head backwards as the single hanging bulb lit. It blared bright, then brighter. Sandy and Mindy came together in a scared embrace. Carol looked at the board, waiting for the knife to move. The hanging light burned like the sun. (laughs) Carol brought her eyes up from the Ouija board, craning naturally her gaze falling onto the fully illuminated, whitewashed wall. In big, purple crayon script, I am here. The knife moved on the board, spinning to face Carol. It tapped gently, vibrating. The light blared in a way that made them all squint. The knife took flight, brushing Carol's loose hanging hair on the way to the light bulb. Hot glass and electrified steel rained to the floor like firework afterbirth. The sound of thumping feet stole Carol from the sensation of awe. Mindy and Sandy were on the stairs and peeling away. Carol flipped over, the cut on her palm stinging against the floor. She ran on all fours until her head hit the banister. She felt for the steps and began climbing. The light at the top of the stairs was subtly brighter, enough to make out shapes, an exit, but not enough to suggest a bulb lit anywhere else in the home. She worked her way up the stairs and heard her phone fall from her pocket and clunk to the cement floor. 
The sound stopped her two risers from the top. She was one of six in class who had her own cell phone, the only one of her close friends. That device enhanced her cool in a way that seemed almost worth the risk of going back for it. Almost. She considered charging back down and snatching it up. Mindy was in the doorway, shouting into the shadows. Come on! Carol let it go and climbed. Reaching the top, she nearly fell back, stumbling with her arms on the lack of a step. Up and running, she trailed behind Mindy. Into the kitchen. Beyond the windows, the cows ran. On the wrong side of the fence. In the living room, void darkness. The rain and winds pounded the glass, rattling in frenzy. To the stairs, past another door, past more windows, more circling cows. Midnight purple streaked with green. The sky was alive. Up the stairs, light from outside glinted off the picture frames. Sandy was at the top. Her eyes looked like pinholes, her mouth like a fissure. We need help. The phones don't work. Use your cell. Carol's throat closed on a plea. No phone put the pressure elsewhere. Her feet thumped on the carpeted stairs until reaching the hallway carpet that matched. There was far less worn. The hall seemed endless, and Carol closed her eyes behind Mindy, behind Sandy. Light flickered on a match head. Take a candle. Take a candle. Mindy's words were hurried and hardened, as if light was the answer. As if light drove away anything but the perception of dark. Sandy kicked the door closed and the trio stood in her room, candles before their faces. What if it's my mom? The others looked at Carol. It was a nice thought, but it felt off. That's stupid. No, but I... Mindy shook her head and held out a hand. Give me your phone. I dropped it in the basement. You stupid rich bitch. The candlelight shrank away with Sandy's words. The rain seemed to have stalled again. The wind let the shaking panes rest. The cows were silent, too. Mindy whimpered and worked a match. It lit to reveal only two of them standing at the center of the room. Sandy? Sandy? Carol held her candle wick to flame. She turned right. Mindy lit her own candle. Turned left. The room was as it had been. Messy. A desk. A bed. A closet. A Taylor Swift poster. And a Hunger Games catching fire poster they'd stolen from the drive-in the summer before. And then Sandy. Sandy? Carol stepped towards her friend. Sandy stood at the closed door, almost touching it, her back to the others. Carol reached. Sandy's hood was up like a monk's, hands somewhere out of view. Sandy? Carol could feel Mindy behind her. She grabbed Sandy's shoulder. Sandy leaned away. Carol took a step closer, grabbed Sandy's hood, pulled it to turn her. The hood flopped down, revealing a smooth head. So pale it looked like styrofoam. 
Sandy continued turning, even as Carol retracted her arm. <laughs> Sandy's eyes and mouth sprouted patches of thin orange hair. She patted at her cheeks and throat as if unwilling to touch it. Then panic strengthened, and she began trying to pull at the hair as it grew thicker. Sandy? Something must have clicked at hearing Mindy say her name. Behind the terror, beyond the uncanny hair growth. Sandy's arms reached out and she charged blindly, helplessly. Carol jumped sideways. Mindy spun off a glancing touch. Sandy continued running until she hit the bed, toppling forwards, her face smashing into the windowsill in pain. The wind gusted through the broken barrier. It was almost as if it rained inside the house as well. Mindy tore away, towards the door. Carol followed, her candle flame dancing, swaying, dying. Mindy started down the stairs, and the meager light from her candle departed as she tripped and began rolling and thumping. Outside, lightning flashed, and the bovine harmony was high and pained. Carol saw nothing of her friend and stopped four steps from the second floor, nine from the main. Behind her, doors began slamming. She spun, taking a step down while looking up. Mindy? Lightning flashed again. Carol saw her reflection in the glass of the pictures lining the staircase wall. It made her scream anew. <coughs> she started down the steps in a hurry, but stopped before reaching the bottom. Her instincts were confused, terrified, immobilized. Mindy? Mindy! Carol's hand gripped the banister so tightly it stung in her fingers. The voice was distant and weak, coming from above. Carol looked up and stared into the shadows. Lightning strikes flashed, one after another, and lit the home in a strobe. Mindy's back was flat against the ceiling. Her arms and legs shook and pedaled, as if she could swim against an impending fall, like gravity was water. No! Mindy fell hard over the newel post at the foot of the banister. Her body wrapped floppily. A scent filled the air. Piss and shit. Carol ran to her and yanked on the girl's limp arm. Mindy! Mindy! Mindy's body slipped and slid to the floor. At the top of the stairs, footfalls pounded heavy and dull, slow steps chasing her like a horror film revenant. Carol let go of Mindy's hand and broke for the door. She swung it open. Wind and rain blasted her back. The steps continued behind her. She forced her way through the pressure, instantly soaked. In the purple-green gloom, Dozens of huge cows paraded in pained circles over the yard. They shined beneath the effervescent cloud cover, bumpy and trailing huge mysterious swatches like blankets or parachutes. The lightning pounded all around her, 
she saw the pale pink muscle and sinewy white tendons of the skinned beasts. The trailing swatches were the inside-out hides hanging from their back ends. Carol turned around to re-enter the home, maybe get to the basement, collect her phone and call her father. She didn't make it a single step, and almost bumped into a tall figure in a red dress. Hair down past her breasts, thick, black. Carol couldn't help herself then. Mommy! The girl's mother lifted her head, eyes blazing gold. She opened her mouth and toothless gums stretched with shadowy divots. Her tongue wiggled like a grayed snake. Her breath was of campfire smoke and rotten fruit. The sight and smell had Carol backstepping. The mouth closed and the woman's smooth skin began drying. Great valleys stretched into shadows until the papery skin tore and revealed bones. Carol's left foot sunk in the soggy lawn. She swung her arms for balance. Head gooey but stiff. A cow wailed the moment before it connected with Carol's shoulder, launching her sideways. Her hip cracked like a gunshot. Her head connected with her ankle. The lights in the house lit, and the din of the parading beast lessened. They no longer ran. They continued their pained mooing. Carol blinked. Once. Twice. Up to the sky that no longer seemed strange. The third blink was the longest. Carol opened her eyes and looked at the two boys and two girls. They were in Sandy's unfinished basement... They had a bloodied Ouija board before them. Candles lit their faces in an eerily familiar glow. One of the boys closed his eyes tightly, chin upturned, hands on Carol's broken cell phone as if it was a planchette. It was dull and dusty, appeared to have aged years. Are you here? Carol shook, turned away. Are you here. The purple crayon laid beneath a layer of grime, stuck in a crack between the wall and the floor. Carol picked at it. The crayon came free. Are you here? The crayon was heavy in her hand, but she managed. On the wall, she wrote, I am here. Never work with children or animals, they say. But when you're a children's entertainer, you don't have much of a choice. Even if your show gets canceled and you're forced to reprise your role at children's parties, no matter how inattentive or ungrateful the kids are. But in this tale, shared with us by author B.A. Reese, 
we discover that entertaining the young ones can be murder. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Aaron Lillis, Nicole Doolin, Sarah Thomas, Jeff Clement, Ellie Hirschman, and Matthew Bradford. So look those kids in the eye and do your best to keep smiling. And whatever you do, don't make them angry. You wouldn't like the transformations. Andy Warhol, or more accurately, a photographer working with him, said not too long ago that everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Centuries earlier, the expression nine days wonder captured the same concept with a bit more optimism. I beat them both out. I was famous for four years. As a prominent actress on children's shows go, that's not a bad run. I remind myself of this during the restless periods I spend checking my phone for a call from my agent as empty beer bottles pile up around me. You see, I starred in a kid's television show for three years called Lucian and the Lily Crank. It's a show that little kids love. Each episode would consist of me wearing a goofy black hat, an orange shirt, and a ridiculous purple cape going on adventures with a computer-generated creature. I was Lucian, and the creature was Lily Crank. My character existed to connect the audience to the show through a human protagonist. I was chosen for the role because of my youthful face and my uncanny ability to endure grueling 15-hour shoots. Lilycrank resembled a sheep, but had wings that allowed her to fly around like a dragon. She looked fearsome enough to be cool while also retaining a sense of cuteness. If you've raised a kid in the last decade, you may have seen plush toys of her in stores. Anyway. Lily Crank would fly me around as we solved mysteries, visited magical kingdoms, and interacted with guest stars, all while teaching lessons to kids. At one point early in each episode, I would receive news that Lily Crank was needed somewhere, so I would call out for her, chanting, The danger is real, this is not a prank, we need your help, Lily Crank! She wouldn't appear at first, so I'd turn to the camera and request the audience to sing along and only then would she actually appear. Of course, this made for a sad spectacle in the studio. I'd beg the camera to sing along, and even though nothing was happening, I'd pretend like an audience had spoken up with sufficient volume. But as our ratings indicated, hundreds of thousands of kids were following my instructions and were swept away by the appeal of me and the friendly dragon sheep. But I could always sense such success would be short-lived. Before long, the kids had moved on. The original audience had grown up and started to enjoy the books and movies from which we'd borrowed ideas. And the next generation of preschoolers had found fresher, newer shows to watch. Worse, even though Lucian and Lily Crank was canceled four years ago, I was forever pegged as the guy from that kid's show. Nobody else in the industry wanted to hire me because audiences would only associate me with that one character. At first, I found plenty of gigs performing at rich kids' birthday parties. I brought a prop blow-up lily crank that, with proper setup, would float briefly in the air, open its mouth, and appear to make some of its signature sounds with the help of a hidden stereo system. I'd wear an approximation of my costume from the show, with the waistband let out a little bit to account for the weight I'd gain. 
and put on a short sketch using a few props and then just interact with the kids, telling some jokes and doing amateurish magic tricks. The kids often loved it, but the whole ordeal felt ridiculous to me. To make matters worse, on a few occasions, parents had hired me for parties for kids who they hadn't realized no longer liked the show, and the kids proceeded to pelt me with birthday cake and anything else at their disposal. But having failed to find any acting success elsewhere, I needed the money, so I kept accepting whatever work I could find. I bring up all this backstory to explain what my life was like when I got a particular offer, one that raised red flags that would have caused anyone else to turn it down. The email arrived on a Sunday morning and asked for my services the next evening. This was a bit odd, as most of my performances took place on weekend mornings or afternoons, and most offers were made well in advance of the date of performance, but I took little notice. The sender, who did not include his or her name, offered me $5,000 for one of my live appearances at a house with a zip code that I vaguely recognized as being within a nice part of a suburb about an hour south of me. The mention of $5,000 for one performance obviously caught my eye. I usually only charged a couple of hundred. Excitedly, I responded right away with my usual pretensions about having a busy schedule, but luckily being able to work this performance in due to a recent cancellation. I asked how I would be paid, and if there would be a good power source, or if I needed to bring my portable generator, and how long my act should be. I got a response less than a minute later that read simply, Cash, we will provide what you need as long as necessary. Arrive 8 p.m. I asked a couple follow-up questions, but received no further response. Now, this was obviously not how the booking process usually worked. But ever since I dropped to being only one of dozens of clients to my agent, I've had to improvise. Still, it was odd being paid such a high amount in cash, and odder still to be appearing relatively late on a weeknight. Look, I get that going to a house alone at night is something no smart person should do and the unusually large promised payment only raised additional suspicions. I thought about whether this was some elaborate plot to rob or kidnap me, but the location was in a safe part of town, and I wanted both the money and the reinforcement of the sense that I deserved it. So I spent Monday afternoon gathering my costume and props, and I drove out early in the evening. As my GPS brought me to a pristine residential neighborhood, I saw familiar sights of parents walking their dogs and kids playing basketball in the streets. My GPS guided me through several turns until I was driving up a heavily wooded hill to another branch of the suburb. Finally, I saw the street I was looking for, Peak View Drive. The road took me slightly downhill to a flat, elevated area with seven or eight additional houses arranged in a loop. Above the tree line, the descending sun left a red sky. The homes were similar to the ones below, but a strange stillness gripped the cul-de-sac they surrounded. I parked my car in front of the address I'd been given, and when I got out, I took note of a general silence, abated only by the whispers of a distant breeze. There were no parents, children, or pets, and certainly no idyllic white picket fences. The houses had undecorated exteriors and empty front yards. A missing cat poster added to the gloomy setting that started to put me in an ominous mood. I knew I had to fight against that. I was about to put on an act that required me to be earnest and enthusiastic while wearing laughable clothes and interacting with props. 
This appearance would be like most, I told myself, with gawking kids circled around me and entertained by my performance. A white van then approached from the same direction I had taken and parked behind me. Oh great, my kidnapper has arrived. Instead, a short, thin woman in a faded blue uniform stepped out. Her van showed that she was a plumber and she carried an appropriate toolkit. She looked me over and smirked. This your place? No, I'm just here as a hired performer. (laughs) That explains the outfit. I tried not to act offended. Yes, I suppose I look a bit silly, especially if you've never seen the Got a call from the city to check out a potential water leak here. Been running around doing jobs all day. Hopefully this one won't take too long and I can get back home at a decent hour. She trudged past me and walked up to the front door. I finished putting on my costume, forced a cheery smile onto my face, and carrying a large box full of props, followed her path. The colonial-style house before me seemed innocuous enough. It was plainly designed and no different from the houses I'd passed on my way up. On the second floor, several large windows jutted out. I saw odd specks of light in one, but when I squinted to look more closely, its blinds abruptly tightened. I knocked on the door. A woman opened it only a moment later. She was as tall as me and maybe in her mid-forties. Her sandy hair was slicked back and she had clear green eyes. Lucian at your service, ma'am. If you can direct me to the right location, I can start setting up. Come in. Call me Stacy. As I stepped inside the hallway, I saw a staircase to a basement that the plumber had begun to descend. Good luck, magic man. She gave me a wink and twirled a ring of keys Stacy must have given her as she walked out of sight. A most unpleasant surprise. Stacy motioned me towards a door at the end of the hallway. The plumber? She said the city center. It's probably a good thing. Stacy didn't respond or even look in my direction. We passed a compact, clean-looking kitchen as we continued down a long, wood-lined corridor. Your email didn't give me a lot of details, and I was hoping you could answer a few questions. Set up on the stage. We will come when you are ready. She opened the door. Before me was an elevated platform surrounded by fancy seats arranged into neat rows. I hadn't imagined that this house could contain a formal auditorium like this. How many kids were going to be here? It looked like there was enough seating for several dozen at least. I heard the door close behind me and noticed that Stacy was gone. This all made me feel odd and uncomfortable. Stacy had been uninterested in me or my questions. Usually there were dozens of children noisily running around any home or backyard where I was about to perform, but today I hadn't seen anyone aside from Stacy and the plumber. The whole house had been totally silent since I arrived. And it isn't exactly common for a house to contain a room this large. I wondered too, in what sort of situation would enough kids attend to fill it up on a Monday night? I was already here, an hour from home with my costume and my gear, so I decided to go ahead with the performance. No matter how badly things went, I would drive off $5,000 richer, and that was all the motivation I needed. I set up the Lillycrank props, both a blow-up version that could make sounds and the plush version I would let the kids pass around at the end, and the speaker system. The last thing I needed to do was to plug the speaker system into a power outlet. As I did this, everything around me turned pitch black. My eyes slowly adjusted to the darkness, and I started to discern lights in the distance. 
My heart trembled at the sight before me. Dozens of pairs of striking, luminescent, green eyes lit up where the seats should be located. It was like like being watched by the glowing eyes of animals, eyes that never blinked. Suddenly, the green eyes faded out of my vision as a blinding bright light enveloped the stage. My own eyes had to readjust, and once they did, I could see the stage before me well, but the audience and their striking eyes were shrouded in darkness. Start. Stacy's green eyes caught my attention more than they did before. I panicked. Everything around me felt so wrong. What was going on? What children have glowing eyes? And why were they all the same color? My mind ran through excuses I could say to leave, money be damned. I could claim I felt sick or even that I had stage fright. Whatever it took, I wanted to get out of that house. Now. I could see the green eyes emerging again from the darkness. They cast a stronger color than before. They were somehow getting brighter, angrier. I said, now. The dozens of eyes now transitioned from green to a hot, fiery orange. I sensed that an undesirable outcome awaited for me if I failed to perform. I delved within myself with the earnest spirit that landed me the job on the show and, mustering my strength, put on a smile and started my routine. As soon as I started playing my character, the luminescent eyes faded from orange to green, and then they receded again into the darkness. For the first few minutes of light-hearted jokes and magic tricks, I heard no response from the audience. Aside from Stacy, who sat close by and was half illuminated by the stage light, I felt like I was performing to a totally empty room. Finally, it came time for me to call in Lilycrank. The danger is real! This is not a prank! We need your help, Lilycrank! I then looked at the audience and asked for them to chant the rhyme with me. Usually, the kids enjoyed this part of the act and enthusiastically joined in. But my call was met with total silence. Without a single voice joining me, I wasn't at all sure what to do or how to proceed. I froze. A moment passed. Continue. I sensed unease in the eerily silent room. Behind Stacy, I saw the rows of eyes light up once more. Continue. I swallowed. Taking a deep breath, I whispered to her. They have to repeat the rhyme with me. Stacy looked surprised. Repeat the rhyme? Yes. Hadn't they seen the show? Oh, wait one moment. She left my line of sight and entered the endless dark void that surrounded me. I felt sweat drip down my face. More and more sets of green eyes appeared all over the room. Instead of dozens, there now seemed to be hundreds. Yet I could hear no noise aside from the throbbing of my heart. Stacy returned to her seat. Do it again. Say it. Then ask them to join in. My eyes grew wide in disbelief. What was happening? What had Stacy been doing in the darkness? And how long did this have to go on? The danger is real. This is not a prank. I need your help, Lily Crank. Then I again instructed the audience to join me. A deafening 
wave of sound followed as the thundering echo of a hundred voices hollered back. The danger is real. This is not a prank. They spoke mechanically and in perfect unison as they finished the chant. The utter joylessness of their collective voice disturbed me. It obviously sounded nothing like discordant voices of young fans of the show that I was used to hearing. I proceeded, tugging at a string I had set up and causing the inflatable lily crank prop to float on stage. Normally, the little kids would laugh in delight at this. But naturally, all that greeted me now was uninterrupted silence. I pressed a button on a remote control hidden in my pocket that turned on the audio system. Gentle kids music started playing, punctuated with some of Lillicrank's signature sounds. The glowing eyes appeared again, and I could tell that they were growing fiery once more. Maybe it was just my imagination, or maybe I was beginning to lose balance from nervousness, but I swear that I felt the stage surface shaking, as if the room itself was angry with me. We don't like this. Turn the music off. Turn it off. My shaking hands took hold of the remote and returned the room to Silas, bringing about another sense of relative calm. What was happening? Stacy noted my hesitation. Is there anything else we need to do? Should we laugh, clap, or chant again? Um, n- no. Then continue. Now. Stacy, I, I, I have to stop. I, I can't do this anymore. Are you refusing to complete your performance? My brain ran through every lie I could think of, trying to find one that would work. I, 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 I need to get a drink of water. That's it. I'll step outside for just a second, and then I'll get the hell out of here, never to return. They haven't paid me, and it's not like I've stolen anything. I'll just leave, and then I'll figure out what to do next. Stacy looked at me suspiciously. Then she stepped into the darkness. A moment later, a glimmer of light appeared down the center of the room, between the rows of seats, making out a path between the stage and the door. This way. We are waiting. It took substantial effort to restrain myself from sprinting away. Instead, I walked slowly out of the room, trying my best to appear calm. Once I closed the door behind me, leaving Stacy and whatever else was in the mini-auditorium out of sight, I saw no need to maintain the ruse. I sprinted to the front door and frantically pulled the handle. It was locked. I felt panic rush through my head. Sweat stained my orange shirt. I turned the lock again and again, clueless as to whatever else I could do. Then I remembered the plumber and the key set. Surely, if I found her, I could convince her to let me out of the house. I knew I had to move fast, lest the inhabitants of the auditorium come looking for me. So, downstairs I went. The first room in the basement was large, clean, and mostly empty. At one end, I saw what looked like a small laundry room. Guessing that was where the plumber could be, I flipped on a flickering light and looked inside where I saw only a toolkit next to a dripping pipe by a washing machine. Hello? I tried to be loud enough that anyone in the basement could hear me, but not so loud as to alert anyone upstairs. Hearing no response, I walked to the only other door, one that I guessed would go to the area underneath the auditorium. What I found upon opening the door sent shockwaves through me. 
The first thing I saw was the plumber on the floor only a few feet away from me. More specifically, it was the top half of the plumber. Her figure from the waist down was nowhere to be seen. Red, web-like ooze covered her head and torso, and wherever the substance touched, her pale skin bubbled and disintegrated. I assumed she was dead, but suddenly her grimacing face looked up at me and attempted to scream. Suddenly, a strand of the gelatinous ooze expanded into her mouth and rapidly tightened, and whatever tiny bit of life remained in the plumber faded as her head collapsed onto the floor. I felt myself about to vomit, but transfixed in horror, I looked behind her. The sentient, web-like structure filled the whole room. Tendril-like appendages stretched up to the ceiling and moved in no ascertainable pattern. Beneath them, scattered throughout the room, were bones. Mostly human bones, as far as I could tell. It resembled a crypt or, or an ancient mass grave. Looking for me? The voice, which I quickly recognized, shook me so deeply, I felt convinced my life was about to end. I turned around to see the plumber. Not only was she standing on two feet, but her eyes now had a striking green glow. You are supposed to be teaching the children. I... I... I got lost? Impulsively, I backed up. I heard a crunching sound and I glanced down to see that I had stepped on the hand of the plumber. Not the plumber before me, but the plumber I had just seen being devoured by the web-like substance. The hand shriveled up and collapsed beneath the weight of my foot. The new plumber edged closer to me. You aren't supposed to be here. Not yet. I winced suddenly as an incredible feeling of pain shot through my body. A sharp pink tendril had shot into my ankle. I saw blood spill out onto the floor as I yanked my foot away and shook the tendril off. The plumber lunged at me, but at that moment I was already shifting my weight towards her to get away from the tendril. Deftly, I crouched and dived to where the plumber had just been standing, narrowly dodging her as she flew over me. I looked behind me and saw the plumber land on a layer of the web on top of her other body. She screamed in pain as the tendrils held her down and the pink web encased her, tearing through her skin in a checkered pattern. Next to her, I began to see a new bubbly figure form in a puddle of pink goo next to her. The slimy substance changed color, coalescing into a human shape, a shape that donned a gray uniform. I knew better than to wait any longer. Ignoring the pain, I looked around again for the key set and spotted it at last behind the toolbox in the laundry closet where I had missed it earlier. I grabbed the key set and hobbled up the stairs, never looking behind me. When I reached the door, I frantically began the process of finding the right key to unlock it. After the first key didn't work, I dropped the chain to the ground in my nervousness. Picking it up, I chanced to glance down the hall, but no one was there, and the door remained shut. I wasn't sure how much longer it would stay that way. I tried different keys until I finally found one that worked. The pain in my ankle continued to assert itself, but I had too much adrenaline in me to care. Pulling the door open, I hurried outside. The cul-de-sac was no longer vacant. It was filled now with children. They all had the same phosphorescent green eyes that shined in the darkness of the evening. 
the kids weren't running around and playing, just standing still, engaged in expressionless observation of me. I felt a strong hand grip my shoulder from behind. You can't leave now. I tried to rush away, but Stacy's hand held me firmly. I turned and I shoved her. She hit the ground, but I don't think she landed too hard. But she lay totally still for just a moment, as if seriously hurt. The eyes of the children around me began changing once again from green to fiery orange. Meanwhile, Stacy's body started contorting. It convulsed, and as she stood up, took an entirely inhuman, twisted form as her neck stretched to an impossible length and drooped down her side, leaving her head and its fiery eyes dangling as she stumbled forward at me. I ran to my car as fast as I could and climbed inside. The children now were all moving towards me, slowly and steadily. The danger is real. This is not a prank. The danger is real. This is not a prank. The danger is real. This is not a prank. The pace of their words and their movement increased. In my rearview mirror, I caught a glimpse of one of the children with what appeared to be sharp, cat-like teeth emerging from his mouth, and he shrieked in anger at me. Behind him stood the plumber again, unhurt and with orange eyes burning fiercely in my direction. After turning the car on, I floored the accelerator. When I reached the stop sign at the end of the street, I could still hear the chanting behind me approaching. I sped through the rest of the suburb and drove for hours on the interstate in no particular direction before I calmed myself down enough to seek medical treatment and contact the authorities. When I returned with the police the next day, what I found matched the information the officers had provided me. Information I had frantically rejected as impossible and untrue. The houses along the cul-de-sac on Peakview Drive were vacant. Construction had finished in this area, but the houses had not yet gone on sale. When I arrived, the house where I had been only 12 hours earlier, enduring a horrifying experience, now bore little resemblance to how I had remembered it. In fact, there was no door at the end of the main hallway, much less an auditorium beyond it. Further, the basement lacked a room directly underneath where the auditorium had been. The room where I saw so many bones, as well as some kind of amorphous creature devour a woman twice, was simply gone. And to further impede my efforts to get the police to believe my story, the plumber appeared to be in perfectly good health. The City Water Authority confirmed that it sent her to fix a mild water leak in the basement of the house, and she reported back to work the next morning without any issues. The police also dismissed my claim about hundreds of sets of bones, citing that no such number of people had gone missing. For a little while, I believed the words of the police, that I had suffered some kind of breakdown, imagined the whole thing, and cut my own foot by accident. I was asked many questions about substance abuse. After multiple drug tests turned up negative, the police let me go, and the wound on my ankle healed up after a few weeks. But deep down, I know what I saw. Having never recovered the props I brought to that house, I finally dropped my act and embarked on a new career. I've lost weight and improved my well-being. But the memories have never fully faded, and they came to a forefront this afternoon. Two teenagers knocked at my door, 
handing out flyers warning about the dangers of local deforestation and encouraging me to attend an upcoming fundraiser. I could barely make out a chubby, washed-up-looking man in a car outside, presumably a parent who dropped them off. As I took a flyer from the hands of one of the teenagers, I noticed an unmistakable green glimmer in the teenager's eyes. He smiled at me. The danger is real. When you're a child and the weather is just starting to improve, there's nothing more exhilarating than organizing a huge game for all the kids in the neighborhood. Hide and Seek is a classic favorite. But in this tale, shared with us by author James Harris, we're reminded that some hiding spots are out of bounds for a reason. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Ellie Hirschman, Matthew Bradford, Nicole Goodnight, Sarah Thomas, Dan Zapula, Graham Rowett, and Kyle Akers. So pick a spot and hunker down, but maybe heed the warnings about where we're hiding. And if we don't, at least my friends kept me company. The inside was dark. That didn't prevent us from hiding in there, though. It was a dramatic game of hide-and-go-seek, one of the biggest we've ever had in Parkville history. Kids from all over the neighborhood came out. Matt knocked on people's doors and asked if Brandy or Brittany or Ethan wanted to come out and play. Everyone saw how beautiful it was. The first day of spring usually brought the biggest of hermit crabs out of their shells. Joe asked his mom for $20 so we could buy water bottles and popsicles for all the kids, and she actually said yes. Bob wrote the rules on a poster board and even drew a map to show where Out of Bounds was, though most of the neighborhood was fair game. But I think what helped them most were the flyers we handed out at school, letting people know that we were going to have a hide-and-seek party one last hurrah before we graduated from elementary and all dispersed to different schools. Parkville Middle was where most of the kids would go, but there was a small bit of the town that was part of Baltimore City, so they'd probably go to Lock Raven. I was part of that crowd, the poorer side of the hood, but I never got treated differently for it. So there we were, me and my best friends, setting up the most massive game imaginable. On a normal day, we got like 10, maybe 15 kids to come out. But we'd been persistent and ready for everything. Bob looked out over a crowd of 50 kids. Okay, here are the rules. This is zombie apocalypse style hide and seek. Ben, the smartest of us, interrupted Bob with a cough. <clears throat> that means when you get tagged, you have to help the finder look for others. 
They know what it freaking means. It was me, Bob, Ben, Matt, Joe, Hannah, Alex, and Kevin up on the play castle at Parkville Elementary. The crowd swarmed around us as Alex held up the large three-fold poster board. Here, on the map. You see that pretty much everything is fair game, but you can't go outside of the neighborhood. What about the vortex? <laughs> That's fine. The vortex was a house, and the woods behind it, on Willow Oak Road. It was abandoned back in the 20s, 70 years before this big game happened. It used to be owned by a man named Samuel Grant. Samuel Grant was a Parkville man who lived in the small town in the early 20th century. He was shot dead in his bedroom by the town folk after he'd been accused of assaulting and molesting five neighborhood children. One of his victims, a little boy named Charles Hutchinson, had escaped from the old man and ran home to tell his dad immediately after he got assaulted by Samuel. Charles's dad, a local police officer, marched over there with most of the neighborhood parents and shot Mr. Grant dead. Charles claimed the old man threatened to bury him alive in the backyard if he didn't kiss him down there, or if he went home and told anyone about it. Mr. Grant died bleeding out on his bed in the house his family had owned for generations. His property was known as the Vortex to kids around town. My parents called it that, and so did theirs. It wasn't a silly thing to us, and it still isn't. Realtors try and sell the house, but the neighbors make sure to tell the homebuyers what is what. There'd been interest in tearing the house down, but that cost money, and that's something that people aren't comfortable parting with. Reports of abduction clouded the household, even after Grant's death. Kids would go in, you know, stereotypical murder house stuff, a dare or impressing a date, and would never be seen again. Those few lucky enough to survive entering the property spoke about how dense and different it felt in there. As soon as you walked in, dread, hopelessness, loneliness, any negative emotion the human body was capable of, you experienced it. The neighborhood collective nodded after we described all the rules. The affair of choosing a person to start as it began like all our other games did, with a tournament of rock, paper, scissors. Everybody faced off against each other. If you lost, you were eliminated from contention for the prime spot. In Parkville, it was an honor to be deemed the first zombie, the one that spreads the infection by a touch on the back. Everyone wanted to be it. It was much more fun to be the serial killer than to be the victim, wasn't it? Kids battled each other, and when they lost, they skulked back behind their victor. Most of my group lost immediately, but for a little while, it looked like Kevin might be the one. He lost in the semi-semifinals, if that's a thing. Harrison Jones was the one who ultimately won, a fifth grader who was in my math class. He was cool, a little angry most of the time, but cool. We ran out, kids scrambling like crazy. A wave sprinted to St. Madeline's, the neighborhood Catholic church. Others left in a hurry, hoping to get as far away from the focal point as possible. And then some of us, my group primarily, took our time. Harrison had to count to 100. We had plenty of time. At least, that's what we thought. 
To a 10-year-old, 100 seconds feels like all the time in the world. Hannah hopped over a piece of dog poop on the grass. Where do you want to hide? We strolled down Whisker Avenue, stopping by Kevin's house so he could pick up a better pair of shoes. The dunce wore soccer cleats for some stupid reason. I remember giving him so much shit for that. Bob answered hurriedly. He'd had a crush on Hannah since the first grade. What are you thinking? I don't really care, as long as we don't lose fast. Two minutes later and we were off. In hide-and-seek, there isn't a sense of urgency till you're spotted. Time also seems to paralyze itself, confusing the players like a mirage. And then suddenly, time sped up with a shout from Harrison. Hey, I see them! All of us didn't even look behind us to know one of the zombies had found us. We ran, not bothering to split up. Not the best move in hide-and-seek, but what the hell. We were a team. Another thing about tag, or any running game in general, is that your intuition and your logical mind lose all function. Your eyes adjust to the blurs around you as fast as an elephant can catch a cheetah. Nothing looks real. The world is a painting with oils spilled everywhere. Maps no longer apply. What you know as a smart, cautious kid flies out the window and you go to places you dared not go before. We didn't even realize we were near the vortex until we were on Willow Oak Road, where the property sat empty. Oh, shooters, no, 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 no. Joe leaned forward, wheezing, hands on his knees. Come on, we need to cut through someone's yard. No, no, we can't do that. Uh, They probably have zombies on the other streets, circling in on us. Fucking vultures. And then, as if they heard us from a hundred feet back, Harrison yelled. They're coming up Willow Oak! Get past them! Get past them! Shit. We're gonna have to do it. It's my fault. I will never not admit that it was my fault. No one would have gone in there if it wasn't for me. We should have just got caught and then finished the game. No consequences. No serious ones. I think about it a lot. I went to therapy for years. Lots of the quacks told me it was impossible to blame myself. Yeah, real easy to say. I chose for us to go in there. I even bullied a couple of the guys. Pussies! I yelled at Kevin and Alex when they said no. One of the worst insults you could toss at a bunch of kids. I was the only one that cursed in the group, so they were used to it, but still. I called them out. And as we approached the house, they had less and less time to decide. We run through the front door. Come on, it's broad daylight and you know they won't come in. I didn't actually know that, but I heard a rumor that Harrison refused to go in the vortex on Halloween when his older brother Daniel dared him to. He got an atomic wedgie for that one. Fine. And when Alex joined in, Kevin did, not wanting to be outdone by a girl. When we crossed the property line, I cut left and ran up the old creaky steps. Without thinking, I rammed the door and fell in. The rest of the group leaped over me, and when Kevin, the last to jump, entered, I got up from the floor and closed the door. 
The inside was dark, even though it was a cloudless day outside. It's hard to think about this next part. It reels in my head, day in and day out. Guilt is a powerful thing. Don't forget it. It can take a hold of you, strong, unforgiving, and people claim you can get rid of it, get closure. They're wrong. They haven't experienced true guilt yet. It's disgusting in here. Outside on the sidewalk, Harrison and another kid, I don't remember who, stood with their arms crossed, clear expressions of annoyance. We got away at least. Matt felt otherwise. I mean, it wouldn't have been a big deal if we were caught. I don't want to lose on our last big game. Bob walked further into the living room. Imagine the stereotypical haunted house. I'm sure you think about spider webs and some flipped over grand piano somewhere in the corner. Maybe a chandelier with disjointed crystals. It wasn't that bad in Grant's house. It was empty, but the wallpaper, the crowning, all of that was in decent shape. Really, it just appeared as if the house was for sale. Not some long ago abandoned torture chamber. Should we look around? We split up, never too far from each other, always in talking distance. We'd heard stories of what the interior looked like. None of us, at least as far as I was aware, had actually been inside. Trouble didn't start until Bob headed to the basement. We might as well go down, explore a little bit. Harrison's not going to come in here. If he finds another kid who will, we'll be easy to catch. I'm not going down there. This is bad enough. If you want to go, fine by me, but I'm staying right here. Same. Yeah, I'm all right. Kevin just shook his head. Whatever. Joe? Hannah? James? I guess I'll go. Sure. Hannah nodded. She was usually down for things like that. She was such a tough girl. All right. If anyone needs us, we'll be in the dungeon. So, we went down, and the four of them stayed up. By that point, we were all infected with the toxic mold. We were tested, all of us, after the incident. And large traces of spores were found on our skin, in our mouths, and everywhere else you could imagine. We climbed down the stairs, clutching onto the handrail the old wooden pole secured loosely by thick bronze handles. Bob descended first, then Hannah, then Joe, then me. Our footsteps clacked, cement meeting our shoes. Thin spider webs floated around our heads, the conventional horror movie tropes making an appearance. Flecks of mold spores. At the time, I thought it was simple dust. Drifted like a sprinkling of snow. It's really dark down here. And it was getting darker as we went down. What looked to be a 13-step staircase was actually more once you reached the bottom. We had to turn left and then go down another set before we reached the basement floor. Let's see if we can find a light. I extended my arms so that my palms pressed firmly on the cement wall. Eager to find a light source, 
I scrambled my hands like I was shuffling a deck of cards the way that five-year-olds do. The other three followed my lead and did the same, each of us close to one another, desperate to see. Our breathing was heavy, unknowingly bringing in more and more spores. Got it! Three seconds later, and a yellow bulb flickered on. The room appeared before us as if we had fire in a cavern. Good job, Hannah. Joe patted her on the back, prompting Bob to also speak up. Yeah, good job, Hannah. Hannah laughed. (laughs) She had the fullest, most joyful laugh out of anyone I knew, and probably anyone I'll meet. Thanks, guys. I remember the tickling in my nose. I've never had anything close to that again. No sneeze that has come close to making me itch. I sneezed uncontrollable <laughs> six times, all of them in Joe's face. Coño pendejo! He pushed me in the middle of my second sneeze. Hannah and Bob laughed. <laughs> Hell, I did too. Until I saw the blood dripping from Hannah's nose. Hannah, your nose... But as Bob reached up to his own... His mouth froze, agape. He brought his hand in front of him, and we saw that he was bleeding too. This is nasty. Joe chuckled in the way kids <laughs> chuckle before going on a big boy roller coaster for the first time. Maybe we should go. Before anyone could answer, the dim yellow light that hardly provided any help expanded, revealing more of the room than when we first got down. I walked further into the basement. Hey, look at this. What are you... But before Bob finished his sentence, he saw what I was talking about. At least I thought he must have. He closed the gap between me and him, leaving Hannah's hand dangling by her side. This is awesome. The room I stood in had the highest roof I ever saw especially in a basement. A pool table was centered in the grand space, nearby a television larger than possible in those days. A Coca-Cola machine vibrated in the back, lined with bottles of black nectar. Cords tangled near the TV. A Nintendo 64 with two controllers sat nicely behind the pool table. We don't need to go anywhere. That was when Hannah screamed. I looked back to see what she was upset about and saw her ramming her head on the wall. Where it was cement before, a plush orange carpeting, my favorite color, lined the room. Seeing her like that didn't matter, though. I turned away, eager to get my hands on a drink and start playing Mario. Joe ran past me, towards the Coke machine, and fell face first onto the pool table. I ignored that. It didn't even faze me. Bob was somewhere else, completely gone from my vision. I played down there for hours, playing to my heart's content. I passed the ice level with the baby penguin, I dodged pokies in the desert, and I grabbed Bowser by the tail and swung him off the castle. It all started to fade. The 
pool table disappeared, and I didn't care. I sat firm on the floor. Then the Coke machine. No skin off my bones. When the TV left, though, I got up, frustrated and longing for another level. I found myself in a dark, small room. The dim yellow light hung above me, a thin metal chain swinging minutely. All of what I saw before was gone. Green and black stains dotted all the surfaces. A washer and dryer slanted, the bottom sunken into the concrete, cracks lining the edges. Circular metal cuffs were nailed into the wall in front of me. Bob? Joe? Hannah? I got up from the ground, my legs shaky like after a long drive in the car. As I approached the steps, I spotted a basketball-sized red stain on the cement opposite the stairs. Trickles of blood were still drying. Hannah? The climb up the stairs was tough, for two reasons. Feeling in my legs was numb. I needed to lift each foot consciously as I went up. And second, I felt as if when I got up from the basement, I'd see something I'd never forget. I was right about that. The basement door was open. On the steps, my feet stuck to a viscous snot, and I needed to lift harder the higher I climbed. The light from outside was duller than when we all first came in. On the second-to-last step sat a tennis shoe. Nike. Air Jordans. Joe's. Watercolor yellow and red and orange reflected beautifully against the chrome sole lining. I pushed the front door open, and I felt it stop halfway. It sounded with a thud, and then I looked down. Wisps of blonde hair and a circle of dark blood pooled. I peeked around the wooden door. Everything in my body told me not to, but I needed to. Hannah lay, her head bashed in, her nose slanted and black. A couple of her teeth clacked when I stepped towards her. Gray Jello lay beside her. I didn't know what it was back then, but I do now. Hannah? Sudden footsteps behind me made me twist around. My neck cracked with whiplash. I didn't see much, but a dirty toe poked from behind where the kitchen opened up to the living room. Hello? The toe backed up, and then I heard running. Then, from outside... Towards the direction of the backyard, I heard a scream. <laughs> Just help, please. It was Alex. Without thinking, I hopped over Hannah's body, careful not to land in the blood, and opened the door leading to the back. It was going to be dark soon. On the porch, a similar deck to all of our houses in the neighborhood, statues of angels crowded the walkway. I pushed them aside and stepped onto the dry, dead grass. Right in front of me, leading to where Lock Raven Reservoir met with Gunpowder Park, the vortex waited. 
trees taller than skyscrapers loomed over. Thickets of what looked to be poison ivy and spiky bushes covered the empty spaces between the trees. And in the thick of it all, I saw Alex clinging to a branch, her body swaying. How James are the rest of them? <gasps> she fell. Twenty feet, maybe, nothing terribly high. But Alex wasn't the toughest of kids. She fell, and I watched as her ankles snapped. She screeched, louder than I have ever heard anyone screech. Her mouth opened and swallowed her face, her eyes barely visible, her hair swirling around her face erratically. Alex! I ran to her. The backyard was empty, save for a couple of the cement statues of angels scattered around. Rumor had it that Mr. Grant didn't place them there, but the neighborhood had, in hopes of warding off spirits. When I got to her, her feet were bent in odd directions. She squeezed her right ankle and grimaced. James, I want to go home. Please, call 911. I don't care. Just please. I want to go home. Her teeth chattered, even though it wasn't cold out. Alex, what happened? I lowered down and touched her left ankle gently. Does that hurt? What the heck does it matter? Yes, it hurts. Sorry. We were in the house, and you guys went down, and Ben, he sort of just walked upstairs. Kevin and I told him not to. We stayed standing around the living room, and I swore I heard something bang from downstairs. Well, I looked at Kevin, and he was pointing up at the second floor where Ben went. Her speech was hurried. The more she spoke, the faster it got. I let her speak, even though a lot of it sounded slurred. It was keeping her mind off the injury. And on the top of the stairs, Ben waved at us, and then, and then... Alex stopped talking and buried her face into my shoulder. Okay, Alex. You stay here. I'm going to... <laughs> Don't leave me. No, no. <laughs> Alex, I, I can't help unless I go. I'll go. Matt ducked out from behind a tree. Matt! Were you just... I shook my head. Fuzzy dots floated around me. Like when someone flashes a bulb in your eye. Where are the others, Matt? He shrugged. Okay, look, you stay with Alex. I'm going to go get help. Something happened to Hannah. I tried to get up from my squad, but Alex dragged me back down. She glared at me, her smeared cheeks blackened with soot, her eyes twitching with the pain of her sprained or broken ankles. Hannah? Instead of answering, I pulled myself off and backed up. Start screaming for help if I'm not back soon. I'm just going to go next door and get Mrs. Bentley to call. I blinked, and when I opened my eyes, they were gone. The nanosecond it took for my lids to drop and then rise allowed the two of them, one of them impaired, to get up and go. It was like a Batman movie, except they weren't Batman, and this wasn't Gotham City. Alex? Matt? What's going on? The forest expanded. I found myself in the deepness of the woods, when seconds before I'd been at the edge, making sure Alex was okay. More fuzz floated by. 
One or two particles were sucked into my nose and I sneezed, much like I had before my fun in the basement. I wandered towards the direction of the house. I could see the red brick exterior far off in front of me. No matter how fast or how much I walked, it stayed there though, stagnant, as if it wasn't moving at all. The orange glow of the afternoon fading remained in the semi-fallen state, a perpetual sunset. It was all very beautiful in an internal way. I found the same stumps next to the same trees again and again. A treadmill in nature, never breaking a sweat, never resting. I was stuck there forever. Some days I still feel like I am in there, in the vortex, walking, running, worrying, relaxing, waiting, like I never got out. I wasn't the type of boy who got deja vu a lot. I used to just ignore people when they said they got it. Like, who cares? Now, though, I get it. And I can't stand it. It always brings me back. There were small differences each time I looped. Maybe a squirrel ran on by. Or a bird squawked in the distance. I don't remember them all. But there were a few that featured my friends just aside from where my peripheral vision could capture them. But by the time I turned to them, they were gone. Joe ran, barefoot, banging his fists against the sides of his head. Kevin, naked, skipped around, twisting his head left and right, scanning the area for invisible creatures. Ben limped beside me, his neck bent so that his ear pressed on his shoulder. Hannah lay her head bashed in, her hair clotted in a red ball. Alex crawled, her fingernails digging into the dirt, her shoes hanging loosely off her feet. Matt strolled, casually glancing at me with each step. In his right hand, a branch, sharp. He stabbed it into his stomach, over and over, each time spitting green and red out into my path. Bob walked on his hands, his body straight like a knife, his fingers grasping the ground and pushing him forward. I could see his face. It was grinning, his eyes bleeding a white substance. Every single one of them passed by me as I tried to escape hell. That's what it became to me. Days, months, years seemed to pass. My friends kept me company. Two days later, I was found by the Baltimore County Police Department. I was in the woods, two miles from Samuel Grant's home. They found me half-starved, walking in circles, no more than ten feet in diameter. I was talking gibberish, calling out to my friends. At the hospital, they told me that I had been exposed to mold strong enough to cause hallucinations and abnormal thoughts. So had all my friends. I don't know what they experienced 
when they entered the decades-old, asbestos-ridden house. All I have is my own account. Hannah died from blunt force trauma to her brain. Joe ran out into the street hours after the moon began to sink. A pickup truck, unable to see him through an early morning fog, rammed into him, killing him on impact. Ben fell from the stairs and broke his neck, not dying from the fall, but from the negligence, staying alive for a full day after. Matt was stabbed repeatedly with a knife, believed to be self-inflicted. He survived, but he now belongs to the state of Maryland, a prisoner in the state's largest mental institution. Kevin went to that same facility. He is detained in maximum security. Solitary confinement is his home. Bob was never found. Not even his body. Alex lives in Pennsylvania with her husband, Josh. As soon as she left high school, she met him and they went off. It was a beautiful wedding. And then there's me. I turned out okay, I guess. Deja vu is something I experience frequently now. Maybe one to five times a day, if I'm really feeling shitty. On dark days, like today, I am reminded of the basement, of the house, and of my friends. It helps for me to write down the events and to read them over. Just to refresh, just to remind me that it is in the past. I hate that house. It was finally demolished after what happened. The evil spores inside done away with. Still, when I pass by, on a nightly walk or on my way home from the nearby community college, I think of that night and how the inside was dark. That didn't prevent us from hiding in there, though. It was a dramatic game of hide-and-go-seek, one of the biggest we'd ever had in Parkville history. Kids from all over the neighborhood came out. Matt knocked on people's doors and asked if Brandy or Brittany or Ethan wanted to come out and play. Everyone saw how beautiful it was. The first day of spring usually brought the biggest of hermit crabs out of their shells. Joe asked his mom for $20 so we could buy water bottles and popsicles for all the kids, and she actually said yes. Bob wrote the rules on a poster board and even drew a map to show where out of bounds was. Though most of the people. In our final tale, we join Clara and Ashley, heading out for some fun and frolics at the community Halloween festival. There will be games, there will be eating and drinking, and there will be dancing. But in this tale, shared with us by author Olivia Taylor Anderson, 
We're introduced to a freaky frolicker who leaves the girls on edge. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio, Nicole Goodnight, Graham Rowett, and Atticus Jackson. So keep an eye on the other partygoers. You never know what they might be up to. Just don't stare too long if your gaze falls upon the belly dancer. Ashley leans into my door as she huffs. I roll my eyes at her. Technically, you can't be late for a free community festival. We have plenty of time. There's no RSVP. I don't care. If we don't get down there soon, the grounds will be full and there will be nowhere good to stand. I'm not sitting on the grass with all the grannies. She's mindlessly puckering her lips as she speaks, spreading her lipstick even thinner across her lips. This is a typical Ashley move. She always calls the shots. I'm just the one who picks up pieces when shit inevitably gets out of hand. Okay, well, I'm nowhere near being ready. So take a pill and go hit the bong or something. Cool your jets and let me get dressed in peace, you psycho. I turn the stereo in my room on. Just hurry the hell up, Clara. Ashley retreats to the living room. I sigh and shut my bedroom door, leaning on the frame after it's closed. We've been living together for two months, and it's not going well. Ashley and I have been best friends since the 11th grade, and while we have inhabited spaces together by choice, this is our first foray into signing a lease together. Initially, it had been me, Ashley, and my boyfriend, Adam. That was until his cocaine addiction became unmanageable and he lost his job. Then, right before we all moved in together, I ended up catching him in his own skeevy web of drug-fueled lies and adultery. After he admitted to cheating on me, we tried to put his wrongdoings behind us. He promised to sober up. We all did, to be frank. The three of us had signed a lease that took, well, three of us to commit to. But after a month of imagining him with another girl while he was on top of me, and the desperate look of approval he'd get when seeking my permission to call his dealer, I'd called it off. Now the only remnant of Adam is Clara's Table of Sad Roses, as Ashley has christened it. Gentlemen, flowers are not an acceptable apology for sticking your penis into another woman, no matter how many you bring home. I peruse my wardrobe like a sorceress choosing the perfect love spell. If there is one thing I have a lot of, it was clothes, courtesy of my aunt, who is coincidentally my size and who blissfully has a shopping addiction. I have, as I like to say, five outfits for every occasion. Seeing as how this is a local festival for the community, and how it is, grossly, set for the weekend before Halloween, since the day of falls on a Tuesday, I expect there to be a number of characters roaming the streets. While I'm not prepared to go full Halloween regalia, I decide the night merits some form of celebration. I slip on a tight club dress with purple shimmering scales and accenting black fabric. Underneath, I throw on a pair of electric yellow tights. The tights are partly in case Ashley gets completely trashed and needs to be able to identify me quickly. As I brush my waist-length hair, I hear the obnoxious sound of the outdated buzzer to our building. I grit my teeth and lean against my vanity. The familiar sound of Chester's slurred drawl as he enters the apartment, creeping under the crack of my door. Hey, gorgeous. 
Chester, or Chet, as Ashley calls him, has been a source of contention, even when Adam was here. As soon as he'd wormed his way into the apartment, Adam and I honed in on something being off about the guy. Ashley, of course, wouldn't listen. Chet had been the teen heartthrob of her hometown, and when she was growing up, Ashley had lacked the confidence to really talk to him. Well, move the small town girl to the big city, and throw in a few amphetamines over the years, and boom. Houston, we have manufactured confidence. It was Adam who mentioned that Chet was using meth first. Adam, of course, having dabbled in meth before, and possibly still was, who knows what the bastard was up to behind my back, recognized telltale signs. When Ashley confronted him, Chet had broken down in tears, admitting that he was, in fact, using methamphetamine casually. It was probably the only victory Adam and I shared after the infidelity revelation, and we had ridden our ten-foot high horse of only doing coke behind our bedroom door as Ashley roared down the house. That was weeks ago. And here I am, single and alone, while my roommate is swapping tongue with her addict boyfriend. So it goes. I sigh and ready myself to be an absolute sycophant to Chet behind my closed door before joining the couple. Jesus, you two, get a room, would you? I come into the living room to find Chet with his hand ungracefully up Ashley's top. Well, somebody didn't take five years to get ready. She leans her head back and ruffles her mop of unkempt, fire-red hair, the bangles around her wrists coming together with a pleasant clink. Ashley is awkwardly pretty, insofar as she isn't a real looker at first glance, but her striking hair and freckle-spotted face draws in crowds over time. I've always been amazed at how easily men fell at her feet and attribute it solely to the hair. Even I want to run my fingers through the ringlets and tassels. She is wearing a light yellow sundress, and I realize I have unconsciously dressed myself to match her. Chet, disheveled on the couch beside her, is wearing his typical graphic tee and black skinny jeans. A picture of his decade past, in which his good looks had afforded him everything a backwater Alberta small town could offer. We don't acknowledge each other. Customary in the Cold War that is our mutual understanding of one another. Well, are you two ready to go, or what? I shoulder my purse and slip my shoes on. Ashley and Chet bounce to their feet and follow me out the door. We live right downtown, but not good downtown. It is an area constantly being lauded with promises of being revitalized. A nonprofit group had set up a pathetic excuse of a community garden along the major street that led to the heart of downtown and ended at one of the city's sketchiest gas stations. Naturally, the garden is a thriving hotbed for weeds, as no one is brave enough to dare the streets in an attempt to plant anything for its intended purpose. The graffiti spray-painted on the industrial-scale brick buildings behind it were intended to be artful, but come off as forlorn and haunting as they peer down upon the panoramic scale of raised weed beds. Contrasting all of this is the fact that a mere four blocks away is a festive Italian street with small boutiques, snug new offices and condos above them, and an Italian market with an attached cafe across the street from a small public park. Personally, Ashley and I find the jarring transition utterly charming. 
The halfway house across the street from our apartment provides constant live entertainment. The shrieks and howls of the neighborhood homeless and prostitutes are an ever-shifting soundtrack of the cityscape. As a general rule, we never go out without attempting to make ourselves look as dismal and threatening as the environment around us, ruffling our hair into raised messes and throwing on our grungiest items. But not tonight. The neighborhood is a little livelier, even in our neck of the woods, and nicer cars are parked in the residential offshoots encircling the park several blocks down. Live music is already playing, and we can hear it from outside our apartment. As we approach, we can hear the multiple radio station DJs jockeying for attention, while keeping their own tunes to a respectful level. Lone musicians croon in intervals along the main drag. As I figured, some people have shown up in full costume, while the older, more conservative crowd is dressed in their near-Sunday best. The immensity of the festival grounds is actually quite surprising once we crest the small hill that borders the south side of the park. The park is packed to capacity, and the carpet of leaves on the ground provides a multicolored backdrop to the various tents, food vendors, and street performers positioned around the space. Hey, Clara! Great. Hi, Adam. What are you doing here? I turn before he can put his arm around me. Adam is dressed simply, as always, a plain black tee, leather jacket, and black jeans. Except tonight, his face features a lazily drawn skull. The only details seem to be put around his eyes. An immense and impenetrable black that sinks deep into his flesh before ending at his white sclera and warm irises. I try not to look at them. They're brown, the same color as a log cabin that you know holds ever-piping hot chocolate and too many warm, fuzzy blankets. Adam smiles broadly. I was in the neighborhood. No, he wasn't. He had moved to a smaller, outlier city after we had split up. Moved back in with his mom, under the condition that we work on bettering ourselves. Ashley sees the confrontation coming and steers Chet coolly to a street vendor serving gelato. Seeing her pull out her wallet to pay for her and Chet's treat sends a shiver of anger down my spine. You moved back to St. Albert, Adam. You weren't in the neighborhood. We talked about this. I know. I know. I just... Clara, you know I really love you. I'm sorry for what I did. For everything. I don't know what else I can say. What do you want me to say, Adam? Say you'll take me back. Say you love me too. You still do, don't you? It's almost a movie moment. The big cliche crescendo where the hero wins the heart of his heroine back. The warm string lights of the festival glittering, the ambient noise of children and families laughing while light local music plays. The camera will pan back as the couple embraces for the final kiss, and maybe Ashley and Chet will share a spoon of each other's gelato as a symbolic moment of rightness as the balance of the cinematic universe is restored. Except this isn't a movie. This is my dirty, messy life, and Adam is my dirty, messy ex. And this is... well, <laughs> this is too much. I am stealing myself to say as much when I notice her. In the distance, away from the main stage, is a woman. Her hair is dark brown and complicatedly braided in parts, while elegantly flowing around the frame of her whole torso at others. Her outfit, a belly-dancing bedlock garb, is deep purple, rich 
So rich that from a distance you can envision your hand sinking into the fabric and disappearing into the depths of her full-length skirt. Her fingers dance around themselves, the small symbols attached to their ends. Zills, I remember learning, though I don't remember who told me. Emitting a clear, crisp, soothing melody as she oscillates and thrusts her torso in a movement that seems violent and fluid all at once. Her full breasts almost shaking free from her top with every percussive movement. It being around Halloween and during a festival populated by street performers, she isn't unusual. That is, until I notice that the circle of people seated on the grass near her aren't paying her any attention at all. Clara! I break my gaze from the dancing woman. I look back to Adam and see a familiar anger lurking in his brown eyes. You're high right now, aren't you? Adam recoils, eyes shifting around the fairgrounds. I shake my head, laughing. (laughs) You know, Adam... When you were high the night before I kicked you out, I genuinely just thought, hey, you know what? The poor guy probably knows what's coming to him, so who could blame him? But now it's just become incredibly evident that you cannot do anything without a bump to get you through. It's pathetic. It wasn't pathetic when you were doing it with me. I push past him, my eyes scanning the crowds for Ashley's mane of hair. I finally spot her and Chet near the back of the line for the cafe. Hey, it's crazy. We live down the street from here, but have never been. She opens her arms when she sees me approaching, then furrows her brow. You okay? Yeah, I mean, it's whatever. I join them in line and lean my head on her shoulder. I can't believe he came here. What a psycho. I mean, you told him, right? You had the conversation last week when he wouldn't stop texting you? When's he going to take the hint? I don't know. It's probably my fault for doing the whole, maybe we can try again later. You never know where the tide will take you. We'll always be a part of one another spiel. Just, you know, most guys move on. Most don't wait around. I hate that he does, you know? Like maybe I made the wrong choice and I should focus on the fact that he loves me. I am exhausted already. Tonight is supposed to be fun. And yet here we are talking about Adam's bullshit as usual. Fuck that, Clara. You're not really going to fall for his pathetic woe-is-me routine, are you? You know that nothing's changed and he just doesn't want to live with his mom anymore. He's using you for a lay in a bed. Adam's a piece of shit and you know it. Ashley is raising her voice as she continues. I generally love her rare fitful moments, but I notice her voice is beginning to be drowned out by a familiar tinkle. Another belly dancer? Must be all the rage this year. I lift my head from Ashley's shoulder and start scanning the street. At first, I can't locate where the noise is coming from in the crowd of costumes, and have to turn around completely to source it. Down the street from us, on a patch of grass enclosed by a knee-high iron fence, is another belly-dancing girl. Her outfit, again, purple. As I stare at her, Noticing the skirt brushing the ground lightly and the way her fingers produce their melody, both soothing and haunting, I realized that it's the exact same dancer. How had she gotten past us without me noticing her? Her fitted hip belt and chest piece are covered in those thin gold and silver coins that only add to the tune with every movement and vibration she makes now that she's closer. 
Hell, I have a cheap belt similar to the one she's wearing that I'd purchased at another fair. I use it mainly for sex, and Ashley has called me out on it many times due to the fact that it's impossible not to hear it. Hey, take a look at that girl's outfit. I turn and prod Ashley's shoulder to get her attention away from Chet's lips for a moment. Hey! What girl, Clara? Ashley cranes her neck as she looks around the park. The girl over there, the belly dancer. I turn to point behind us. The space the woman had previously occupied is empty. She's wearing this amazing purple outfit. You have to see it. But she keeps moving. <clears throat> I haven't seen anyone dressed like a belly dancer since high school. Ashley turns back towards Chet. He cocks an eyebrow at me over her head and nods pointedly behind me. Turning again, I see that Adam is now leaning against a tree in the park, close to a booth selling cheap knives and metal pipes. He is glaring at us, trying not to make it obvious, and failing. Ignore him. The lineup for the cafe is slow-moving, but once we get our authentic Italian coffees, all three of us feel a million times better. The only downside is that the coffee shop is packed with zero seating available. The regulars of the shop had clearly posted up early and were hard-pressed to be moved for new business. They greedily hogged the seating while loudly demanding extra attention from the waitresses and busboys, clearly considering the festival a nuisance. I'm sure they figure it's bringing in the rabble from up and around the street. Instead of fighting to get out through the entrance and thus daring the regulars' glares and whispered complaints, we decide to go through the Italian market that borders the coffee shop. The market, packed with authentic Italian foodstuffs, has a rich and aromatic flavor. Patrons speak openly with employees as if they were long-lost relatives. This is not our usual neighborhood chain grocery store. This place is adorable. We should definitely start shopping here. Ashley plucks a small cherry tomato from an open display and pops it into her mouth. I grimace as I imagine the tangy texture of the tomato mixing with the bitterness of her Americano. That's if you don't get us kicked out of here first. She blushes. It's one fucking tomato, relax. I'm used to Ashley's antics, and probably any other day, I would shrug off her extremely minor theft without care. However, the coffee has my already revved confrontation engine going, and I'm having none of it. I don't care if it's one fucking tomato, and I'm not going to relax. I'm sick of how selfish you are. You know, the family that owns this place probably doesn't appreciate it. You wanted me to come out with you tonight, so can you at least try to behave? We live in this neighborhood too, you know? Shit, Clara. If I had known what a stick in the mud you'd be tonight, I wouldn't have asked you. She grabs Chet's hand and walks briskly away, leaving me standing in the middle of the produce section like an idiot. I think briefly about chasing after them, or at least matching their pace, but decide against it. Fuck her if she's going to act like this. Besides, just because she asked me to come doesn't mean I have to spend the night with her and Chet. Ever since we'd moved in with each other, the window of tolerance for each other's bullshit has shrunk dramatically. Maybe I am being a bit of a bitch, but I can't keep admonishing her like a parent. Ashley's a grown-ass woman, and she can make her own mistakes and deal with her own consequences. 
Realizing that Ashley's exit had been less than subtle, I continue wandering around the store absentmindedly. The rhythmic beeping of the checkouts, mixed with the aggressive bass music being blasted by some radio booth, is soothing and seems to match somehow. A mechanical heartbeat punctuating the rushing war of blood flooding through my cheeks and ears. The aisles are filled with mostly imported products I've never seen before, with cursive Italian labels. Fat jars of olives basking in their oils in earthy greens and musty browns, covenant blacks, each looking richer than the last. The deli section is lively, and a string of customers is waiting in line while the deli workers pass thick slabs of cured meat between themselves at a lively pace. Capicola, prosciutto, spala, and something called speck are featured prominently in neon letters. A whole fat aisle of different brands, types, shapes, and colors of pasta is centered in front of the deli. It's while I'm admiring all the different types of spaghetti the store has to offer that I feel the familiar prickle of someone watching me creep across my shoulder blades and up my neck. Figuring it's Ashley and Chet, hopefully coming back to apologize, or at least act like nothing happened, I turn around quickly enough to catch Adam, attempting to hide behind the end of the aisle cab. Really? I throw my arms up and let them fall against my legs angrily. Adam steps out from behind the display of Italian sodas, a sheepish skeleton holding a jar of boldly colored pasta sauce. I saw Ashley and Chet leave, but you weren't with them. I wasn't following you exactly. How is this, in any way, not following me? I almost shout, but I'm able to keep my voice a stern, mom-like tone instead. Hissing through my teeth like that at him grates me. He's just another mess I have to clean up after. His eyes grow dark as he frowns at me. I wasn't done talking to you. Well, I'm done, and I've been done for a month now. You have to stop this, Adam. You're actually starting to frighten me, and if I'm going to be honest, stalking. Coming into the city like this. I take a few steps toward him as I speak. He isn't tall. We're about the same height. Part of me is starting to think that Adam might hurt me, and a public confrontation with him would be better if it comes to that. He clenches his jaw. Claire, you said that if we worked on ourselves, we could figure things out. We are feet apart from one another, and I can smell the staleness of the clothes he's wearing and the scent of leather from his jacket. I don't want to work things out, and I don't want to be having this conversation. And then, her, behind the deli workers, directly behind them. Purple outfit, Zills clacking her familiar tune, which interrupts the noise of the supermarket, hair flowing and wrapping itself around her waist like snakes. She smiles and raises her arms above her head, clapping the zills together rhythmically and beginning to dance with her eyes locked on mine. Claire, Jesus Christ. Adam grabs me by the arm and starts pulling me outside. Momentarily stunned as the world of noise hits me like a tsunami, I don't struggle. Instead, I make sure I don't lose sight of the woman behind the counter as I'm led out of the store. Once we're outside, I wheel on Adam. Did you see her? I point back inside the store. He throws his arms up, exasperated, as if I am the problem here. 
He speaks with punctuated precision, articulating each word with a jab of his hand. See who? The belly dancer. The one standing behind the fucking meat counter in there. Adam turns around, making an exaggerated effort in trying to locate the woman. There's no one there, Clara. And I really don't think a deli would let a half-dressed woman into their back end. Unless it was someone's relative or something. Either way, it's a piss-poor attempt at a subject change. Fuck off, Adam. I'm serious. We're not having this conversation now. We are over. The faster you get that, the sooner you can move on. I'm sorry if anything I said was misconstrued, but I am not getting back together with you. I turn and start walking away from him, and as I do, Adam reaches out again, grabbing my arm with bruise-inducing force. I rip myself away from him and take off through the booth set in the street, losing myself and him in the crowd. The music is loud and jumbled. Dozens of street performers, radio booths, and the stage all compete for attention at once. The sun has set quietly since we entered the cafe, and the twinkling string lights give the fair a warm glow. Not that I have time to enjoy this. I want to go home. The mixture of the crowd, some in full Halloween garb and others in street clothes, is unnerving. I keep an eye out for anyone with a painted, skeletal face. I'm walking with half my attention turned to scanning the crowd behind me for any sign of Adam when I hear Zills. Clara. Ashley throws herself into me. She smells like beer and must have been sitting beneath a tree near the center of the grounds. I can see dirt and grass stuck to her clothes as she releases me from her hug. Ash, what's going on? Where's Chet? Have you seen Adam? I pull her behind a group of people as we talk. Not that it helps. The belly dancer is there, just off to the side, partially obscured by a large sculpted bush. I don't know. I saw Chet talking to some guy after we left the cafe and he disappeared. The guy looked like a total creep, so he probably left to try to score. <laughs> As Ashley sobs, the belly dancer mouths her words like a broken puppet, methodical, and with a jaw that swings open just a little too much with every word. Doing my best to ignore the woman, I pull Ashley along with me as I begin walking home. Look, I'm going home. Adam is following me, and I don't feel safe. This night is a bust. Let's just go. Nodding her head sullenly, Ashley follows me, and we speed walk back toward our apartment. The noise of the fair fades with every step, and I let go of Ashley's hand. We're almost across the street from the grounds when I hear it, in clear precision, like someone is performing just in front of me. Zills. Dancing a light tune. The crowd's laughter from the fair accenting each ringing punctuation. I start walking faster, head whipping from side to side, trying to catch a glimpse of the woman from the fair. <laughs> Ashley's a few paces behind me. I turn around and stop to wait for her at the head of an alleyway, still focused on the tinkling melody of the coins and zills that's pulsing in the air around us. There's an inkling in my brain, something that I, at first, ignore. A growing, thumping sound, 
like running feet on a football field, precise and aware of their movement. I glance to the alley at my right, and the dancer is there, barreling toward me like a linebacker with her arms pumping wildly and her head cast down. The coins on her outfit clatter together, her hands still working the zills in a cruel, foreboding mockery of the tune she'd been playing throughout the night. I'm frozen in place, unable to comprehend the figure coming towards me as either friend or foe. She lifts her head, revealing a broad smile that extends across her face in a garish gash of maleficence. Clara, look out! Ashley pushes me roughly to the ground, and I fall hard on my ass, scraping my hands against the pavement. Two bodies slam into each other. Adam stands up, looking between me and the road. I'm livid, ready to chew his head off right where he stands. But then, I hear Ashley's gurgled whimper, thick and heavy and stuck in her throat. Adam bends down, pulling a large, decorated hunting knife from Ashley's abdomen, the kind you'd get from a fair booth. A spring of dark red begins pooling around Ashley as she lays on the road, eyes rolling in her sockets, unable to comprehend or focus on the world around her. Ashley? No, 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 no. I'm at her side, hands futilely pushing against her stomach, trying to staunch the blood from the wide wound across her abdomen. There is so much blood. I look, and Adam is bent over by the road beside us, heaving. I just wanted to talk. But I don't really hear him. No. All I hear are the Zills. Standing across the road from us is the woman, arms outstretched above her head, gracefully undulating, with her torso in the same posture she'd had in the deli. She smiles at me. Adam was charged with manslaughter, which was a far cry from the murder charges that Ashley's family demanded. He didn't run when the cops came, alerted from the fair by my screams. Ashley bled out in my arms before the ambulance arrived. Adam's cheap, newly purchased knife had ruptured her abdominal aorta. Even if I had called 911, the instant he stabbed her, she probably still wouldn't have made it to the hospital. There was nothing I could have done, as everyone at her funeral told me, and continues to tell me. I disagree. To this day, I don't know who or what that woman was. Was she there to warn me? To taunt me? Was she real? I don't know. I started belly dancing about six months ago. I have my first paid performance at a friend's birthday this week. Last week, I was shopping for a new bedla outfit in the arts district of the city. As I was walking past a shop window, I noticed a familiar, deep purple skirt in the window that caused me to pause. The length was long long enough to sweep the ground gently as it hung on the mannequin in the window. Its matching top was laced with an intricate pattern, its accents matching the regal color of the skirt. Chains and coins hung loosely around both articles, promising a melody with every movement. I was admiring the garb in the window. I caught the reflection of a familiar smiling figure in the window behind me, hands above her head, torso circling the air in a manic fashion. 
Before I could turn to face her, her smile stretched widely across her face, seizing me with fear. She brought her hands down suddenly, clicking her zills together twice in finality, and disappeared. joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.